Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. We've entitled our second season Asset Class. After years of very good returns, broad indices of US stocks and bonds look expensive relative to history. This reality both limits future returns and increases the risk of a market correction. Investors who want to enhance future returns or reduce risk may need to adopt a more sophisticated approach, looking at different sectors and styles within US equities and bonds, and looking at other assets to diversify their portfolios. And that's what Asset Class is all about. In each episode, we look at an area of investing and speak to an expert in this area. In 2020, as investors faced unparalleled uncertainty due to the coronavirus pandemic, money market funds and cash alternatives saw record inflows. As the global economy recovers, and investors look for enhanced returns and even conservative assets, cash alternatives and short-dated fixed income have played a greater role in portfolios. However, this space remains challenging due both to the Federal Reserve's determination to keep short-term interest rates at very low levels and tight credit spreads across fixed income markets. Someone who's very familiar with these challenges is James McNerney, who serves as lead portfolio manager of the actively managed JP Morgan Ultra Short Income ETF and is a key member of the global liquidity team here at JP Morgan Asset Management. So James, welcome to Insights Now. David, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, well, so to start with, can you help us define the ultra short duration space and how does this strategy differ from a money market fund? Yeah, sure. So the simple definition of an ultra short fund or a strategy is a fixed income portfolio with a maximum weighted average duration of one year at the headline portfolio level. Another way to put that is it's a very low duration bond fund, which should in turn exhibit low volatility. If you think about the risk reward spectrum, starting with cash, you know, the immediate next step out the curve is into money market funds, uh, which is why they're often referred to as cash management tools. And I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with them, but they are very short and tilt very high quality. So in the U.S., they can only have a maximum weighted average maturity of 60 days. They need to keep 10% in daily liquidity and 30% in monthly liquidity, uh, or excuse me, weekly liquidity, and, and primarily invest in high quality money market instruments like commercial paper, certificates of deposit, uh, and participate in repo. And, and they can't, can't buy securities with maturities longer than 397 days. The ultra short segment is the next step out the curve for money market funds and uh, should not be thought of as a cash management tool. We do uh, invest in some CP, CDs, and repo, but the majority of our portfolios run as a short-term bond fund. So our strategy here at JP Morgan has a much bigger toolbox, if you will, than our money market funds. Uh, we have a much greater breadth of sectors that we can rotate through. Um, so while we can buy treasuries and agencies, we also buy corporate bonds, structured debt, including mortgage-backed securities, commercial mortgage-backed securities, uh, consumer-related asset-backed securities like receivables on credit cards or autos, and collateralized loan obligations. Um, and then our max maturity is, uh, is five years out the, out the curve, and then we, we can buy down to triple B minus uh, in the portfolio as far as quality. So, so that does give you a, a fair amount more latitude than you'd have in a money market fund. And I guess that sort of brings me to my next question is, <laughs> it is very hard to do better than 0% in, in, in a lot of you know, close to cash equivalents right now. So how do you, how do, you do better than 0% in this, in this environment? What, what are the areas where you're picking up that extra yield? Yeah, and it is a challenging environment for certain um, but it's not to say that there's not a yield pickup or a premium from moving out the curve. So today, you know, we we do have a normally shaped yield curve, albeit not very steep. 
but that gives us more yield for buying longer securities relative to shorter ones. And that also allows us uh, some carry and roll as existing securities move down the curve towards maturity. So aside from uh, treasury curves being normally shaped, so are credit curves, meaning the credit spread for a two-year bond is wider than the credit spread for the same issuer in the one-year space. And with the sectors that I mentioned earlier at our disposal, we are you know, able to actively rotate into positions uh, that offer value while at the same time managing the risk of the portfolio by actively trading our overall duration curve and sector positions. The 30-day the SEC yield on the fund right now, or the net yield, is about 37 basis points uh, today, or 0.37%. Um, that's moved higher than where we were earlier in the year, given you know we've seen a backup in rates uh, and a steepening of the yield curve. Um, and we've been taking advantage of some new opportunities in sectors that we had reduced uh, in 2020. But it's important to stress uh, these are total return products. So while yield is important, uh, we're also actively trading the portfolio to generate uh, additional alpha uh, on top of the carry or the yield uh, of the portfolio. So, so put put simply, it is um, it is it's still a very conservative portfolio relative to fixed income portfolios in general. Um, but of course, the Federal Reserve is important to you as it is to everybody in in the fixed income world. So, what's your view on when the Federal Reserve is going to begin tapering and then sort of normalizing policy overall? And how does this impact how you're managing the portfolio? Yeah, and, and certainly uh, in our space, uh, monetary policy is going to be the driver of yields. Um, you know, three years and shorter on the on the on the yield curve. Um, you know what the Fed is doing with regard to rates is going to dictate the yield of the portfolio uh, that we're running. So our team's view here is that we're likely to have an announcement on tapering. Um, in the second half of this year. Uh, the earliest that we'd expect it would be at the Jackson Hole Symposium in August. Um, as far as rate hikes and normalization of, of policy uh, with regard to, to rates, um, you know, we're calling for liftoff in early 2023. And uh, although today the market is pricing an 80% chance of liftoff in the fourth quarter of 2022, which we think is a risk um, given the improving outlook and the Fed's propensity to take action like that in, in the month of December historically. Uh, that's made us confident running a longer duration position than we typically would be um, in, in such a low yield environment, You know, taking advantage of the normally shaped curve that we mentioned earlier. However, where we're doing that on the curve uh, is very important uh, to us, given the risk of a continued curve steepening as the reopening takes shape. So the majority of our duration, while being longer at the portfolio level than historically, is concentrated two years and shorter as we await for curve steepening and then try to mitigate the risk that potentially hikes get pulled forward uh, by the market impact the two-year part of the curve as well. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, you know, again, it's not, it's not, shouldn't affect your fund nearly as much as other areas. But when you t think about longer term rates, I mean, how do you feel that, that the Fed tapering and the prospect of them eventually raising short term rates, how is that going to affect uh, longer duration bonds, given the movement that we've already seen so far this year? Yeah, I mean, and I think that we have seen it impact longer duration bonds thus far. Um, I even think back to a year like 2018, where we had, you know, pretty steadily, that was a little bit different, obviously, given the Fed was hiking rates, but, you know, bond, longer bonds underperformed shorter bonds. And we've seen that this year as well. And with the front end of the of the of the curve well anchored, uh, you know, the front end has has outperformed as we've seen this steepening steepening, you know, it gives us some opportunity here uh, to extend into that steepening. You know, if you look at even just our space, 
the two-year the spread between the two-year treasury and the five-year treasury has widened by about 50 basis points this year and as i mentioned earlier we do buy out to five years although we're not necessarily compelled to um We've selectively been taking advantage of that in fixed rate corporate paper. So uh, primarily in the new issue market, we typically can get bonds a little bit cheaper as there's new issue concession on the spreads that we're buying. Um, so we will step into some cheap issues out there, given the steepening that we've already seen in the five year today at 80, 80 basis points, roughly between 80 and 90 basis points. Um, gives us good yield pickup and, and again carry and roll. But you know we are going to be very uh, very uh, cautious on adding duration, especially further out the curve, um, as we think that as the recovery takes hold here um, and we continue to progress through, especially the next few months, um, there's certainly a risk with with greater inflation off of the base effects um, and and the reopening um, as well as growth picking up that we'll continue to see a steepening of the curve. Uh, which will include our part of the curve as well. So we want to be cautious again on adding too much fixed paper out there, um, but we are going to take advantage uh, as we see opportunities in in one-off scenarios. I think one place that we have been adding, though, um, given the backup, given the steepening, given the risk of a further rise in rates is in floating rate notes in particular, we've been adding back in AAA-rated CLOs, um, and I mentioned these, even though these are not fixed rate instruments, these are floating rate instruments, which, help, which helps us to mitigate the risk of that backup and, and, and uh, curve steepening. But these securities are, you know, backed by a pool, a well-diversified pool of, uh, of corporate bonds. Um, and, and given our outlook, uh, that corporate fundamentals remain strong um, and that there's solid credit support in the structure that we're buying being at the AAA tranche. Uh, these yields on these securities are about 1% that we're purchasing. So obviously relative to the portfolio being around 40 basis points right now at, on yield, you know, these are some of the more attractive securities that we can buy. And again, with them being floating rate, certainly uh, certainly helps us to mitigate the risk of, of a move higher in rates. Um, but, you know, a sector like that is something that we had rotated actively out of last year on the fear that maybe we would see corporate, you know, defaults on on leverage loans start to pick up. Now with the reopening, we're taking advantage of that by rotating back into that sector. I think I think it's um, it's really interesting thinking about the risk appetite of investors right now. I mean, when you think about flows into your space, into the ultra short duration space, are these flows coming from people who were sitting in money markets or even or, or in cash and and trying to take get a little bit more return uh, for very little risk, or is it more a case of people who are um, longer duration who are just worried about uh, yields backing up and so trying to move into the ultra short duration space? So I think it's a little bit of both, but I think that it's been primarily driven by the former, which is you know investors that have too much cash and money market funds earning very close to zero and are looking to segment some of that out the curve into the, as we mentioned, into this space, the next step out where you can get more yield and more total return. Um, the one thing that we would always note there is that if you have, you know, the, the minimum investment horizon that we would recommend for being in this space is six months. So if you have a near term cash need that you know you're going to need the cash inside of six months, we would recommend continuing to stay in a money market fund just in case we were to hit an air pocket of some volatility, maybe like we saw in March of last year, you know, the timing on your withdrawal from a fund like this then could be um, could be a little bit, uh, you know, could could be hurt, hurt you a little bit. But you know, if you can stay in the position as we as we saw last March um, for you know a couple of months, we can uh, come back, you know, see the fund come back and break even uh, and and recapture that drawdown, if you will. Um, 
Thinking about flows into the space, though, I mean, even year to date, we continue to see strong flows. Um, you know, the ultra short space is up about $11 billion in net new flows, uh, and that's industry wide. Uh, but that puts it in the top seven categories for actively managed strategies. Um, you know, here at JP Morgan, JPST, our, our active ETF that we uh, that, that I manage uh, has grown by over one billion this year. Um, and over 17 billion since we launched it in 2017. So I think that to your point, there is you know continued appetite for uh, that pickup and yield and return in this space. Um, but you know I think that increasingly we're starting to have conversa- conversations with folks this year uh, who are in um, who are in you know that latter camp of you know moving down the curve potentially looking to shorten up uh, their fixed income exposure. Um, and, and come into a space like this, not give up you know, too much yield by going all the way down into a money market fund, um, but still continue to, to generate you know, that 40 basis points of, of, of yield um, while you know, shortening up their duration and, and lowering the exposure that they have to, to a rise in interest rates uh, and a steepening of the yield curve. It's, it's interesting. I, was, I mean, obviously, this has been a traumatic and dramatic year and a half for all of us here. Um, and you know, when, when you talk about the amount of money that is you know, the amount of cash that is looking for a slightly more lucrative home, of course, I'm <clears throat> I'm very aware of the, the growth in the money supply that the Federal Reserve has really been engineering here. I've just had a huge growth in M2, and it would seem that some of that might move into the ultra short duration space. Uh, but that does bring me back to what, what caused all of this and the, the dramatic events of last March as this pandemic hit. Was that about as stressful as it ever gets for a portfolio like the one you run? Um, and, um, you know, do you think that we're going to see something like that again? Yeah, I think uh, stressful is, is an understatement. I mean, it absolutely was about as stressful as it gets. I've been a fixed income PM for almost 20 years, and it was certainly the worst liquidity I've ever seen, including managing through the great financial crisis. Um, you know, anything, any portfolio uh, that held any sort of credit was affected uh, and we saw stress from you know money market funds all the way out to to long bond funds. So it wasn't just an, an ultra short issue. Um, even the treasury market traded irregularly with wide bid ask spreads. Uh, and this was for you know really a two week, two to three week period um, in the middle of March of last year, as I'm sure everyone's well aware. In that period, we drew down. You know, JPST drew down about two and a half percent peak to trough. Um, and as I mentioned before, though, so you know that timing, if if you had to exit your position then, would have been. Uh, you know, a little detrimental, but you know, we more importantly, we we recovered uh, that two and a half percent drawdown in less than two months, and so that's why we would always recommend if you're going to take the step out into this space, you want to be able to uh, stay in it for at least six months. Um, and 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 again, in in a period which was probably the worst stress that we've seen, uh, and I hope to ever see again uh, in my career, uh, we still were able to recover uh, importantly in, in two months. You know, and 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 uh, recover that drawdown. Um, and I think that that's a testament to sort of the design of of the product um, and, and our and our risk mitigation and active management uh, in the portfolio. And I think also a, a testament to the fact that the central bank just doesn't want to see that dislocation. So, you know, when you have a shock like this, and this is really an unprecedented shock, but even then you'll see central banks step in to try to fix the problem. It's just it may take them a little while to do so. And as you say, that's why it's not quite the same thing as, as uh, you know, completely um, you know, risk-free cash. Um, but a very interesting time. As I, I share your desire that we won't see this again anytime soon. Um, 
Look at, look at, you know, you talked about uh, how long you've been managing money in this space. You have been both a mutual fund manager, now you're an ETF manager. What are the pros and cons of both? And, and how has having a large secondary market with the ETF benefited shareholders? I, I think very simply, you know, just being in a commingled vehicle in this part of the curve is beneficial. You know, it's very difficult to operate if you're, you know, managing a portfolio on your own to to build a position of, of a diversified portfolio through individual bond purchases and not to mention having, you know, uh, someone doing the credit work. You know, we have great credit analysts who are looking at the individual names that go into the portfolio. Um, and, and, you know, we size things very granularly. So we're building a very diverse portfolio across the names that we're buying. Um, so I think, again, there's, there's certainly a benefit to being in a commingled vehicle, whether it's a mutual fund or an ETF, um, you know, is up to is up to the individual investors, at, you know, uh, appetite and style. I think for us, we, we manage, you know, our mutual fund suite and our ETF suite off the same platform, same team philosophy and process. Don't really think about the positioning a whole lot differently, except, you know, some of the funds can undertake or invest in uh, certain sectors where others cannot. But that's... Um, you know, besides those differences, um, you know, we manage the funds very similarly by the same team. So I think at the end of the day, it's a matter of individual preference. And we've certainly seen a shift in especially the advisor community uh, towards ETFs. And I think that that's why when you look at, you know, our, our mutual fund on in this strategy in the U.S. was launched in 2010 is about 15 billion in assets. The ETF was launched in 2017. And as I mentioned, is that's just shy of 17 billion um, so certainly we've seen a shift in that direction. Um, as far as from a portfolio manager's standpoint, um, you know, a little inside baseball, having managed both, as you said, David, um, you know, I, we've certainly, I'll take a step back. When we came into this and we launched the ETF, I think we did so, you know, with a little bit of trepidation, if you will, just not knowing what to expect as active PMs. Um, and having managed mutual funds and SMAs or separately managed accounts our, our entire careers. And um, we've been pleasantly surprised at the efficiency, if you will, uh, through the ETF wrapper. And what I mean by that is having that secondary market liquidity, um, if you will. And I wouldn't call it, you know, it's not additional liquidity. It's just a different mechanism of liquidity for investors to get in and out of the fund um, or to enter and exit their positions through the, sec the, the, the trading of shares of the fund on the secondary market for the ETF. Um, and where that's beneficial from from our seat, as I mentioned, uh, sort of when I started this answer, you know, this space can be challenging to source bonds. Um, you know, when you're buying bonds that are one year with one year left to maturity, they oftentimes can be put away um, and, and people just hold them to maturity. Um, so when we do, you know, get into a position that we really like, we don't want to have to sell it uh, to, to, to fund uh, the exit of a position of a client from from our fund. And with the ETF, you know, one of the things that we've seen is clients entering and exiting their positions repeatedly in size um, throughout time uh, with very little impact to flows or to, to outflows anyway um, that actually hit the fund. And so you can have a client today who might need to get out of their $50 million position. They'll go to the secondary market and sell those shares uh, a, a broker dealer will take that down onto their balance sheet and then turn around and sell those shares on to another investor that's interested in the fund, as opposed to in a mutual fund where, you know, that $50 million position uh, would come, you know, would hit the fund, we would have seen a redemption, uh, have to raise assets or cash to fund that redemption. And then if we got money into the fund tomorrow, we would turn around and be looking to source those those bonds again. And again, as I mentioned, you know, that can be difficult at times, just given all of the demand that we see here. 
uh, and, and supply that's becoming uh, more and more limited um, just given sort of market dynamics and technical. So I think that that is beneficial. And, and at the end of the day, it certainly will help performance um, if you do not need to be constantly trading in and out of positions to fund flows. Interesting. Um, so, so turning back away from, you know, how, how it is for a portfolio manager, let's just go back finally to, to the average investor. How would you say a, an ultra short duration fund fits into the portfolio of an average investor? Yeah, again, I think, you know, you think about it as a bond fund, but a very low duration bond fund that, again, as I like to say, you know, should exhibit low volatility. And for that reason, you know, I think a lot of investors, there's two use cases really for a fund like this. Um, and again, it's it's a matter of timing and sort of how you're positioning, porf- what, you're, what you're positioning your portfolio for. And, and again, lately, the majority of it is the use case of, you know, investors that have too much cash in a money market fund or in, a, in deposits. Uh, something that's earning them very uh, near zero right now, um, and they're looking to 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 segment out the curve some of that cash where they have uh, foresight into into their cash needs and know that they're not going to need to touch this cash for a minimum of six months. Those are the clients that I think again are the majority of clients that are adding something like this to their portfolio, looking to to increase their yield and total return without taking on too much risk to do so. Um, but there are times uh, where that second use case comes into play, where we see investors looking to shorten up duration, as we mentioned before, of their overall fixed income uh, alloc- port- allocation in their portfolio. Um, and, and you know, that's typically going to be in a rising rate environment. What's interesting right now is I think a lot of people are starting to see their first quarter statements and see how the steepening of the, of, of the, of the curve has impacted their fixed income allocation. And they're beginning to, you know, we're, get, we're fielding more questions around and, and talking to more clients who are looking to possibly, you know, take some of their allocation and maybe move it down the curve. Where we really saw that happen quite a bit was in 2018. So I, I mentioned we launched the ETF in 2017. In 2018 was really where we saw growth take off, and a lot of the growth that year uh, was in in, in investors looking to shorten up duration and move down the curve. Because if you remember, obviously, the Fed was hiking rates in 2018, uh, and this space outperformed core bonds um, to the tune of, say, you know, JPST outperformed uh, the Barclays Aggregate Index by over 200 basis points that year. So it was a good place to hang out uh, in a rising rate environment. I think, again, that will kind of come into vogue as we continue to move through the cycle here. Certainly, it seems timely given the prospect for higher, higher rates, but also the need to find some yield in, in a very low yield environment. Um, listen, thank you so much for joining us, James. Thank you, David. And thank you all for listening. Please tune into our next episode, where I'll be joined by Andrew Norelli, Portfolio Manager for several strategies in our Global Fixed Income, Currency and Commodities Group here at JP Morgan Asset Management. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass.